Our scripture text comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 35, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 10. The desert and the dry land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. They will burst into bloom and rejoice with joy and singing. They will receive the glory of Lebanon, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the Lord's glory, the splendor of our God. Strengthen weak hands and support unsteady knees. Say to those who are panicking, be strong and do not fear. Here is your God coming with vengeance, with divine retribution. God will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be cleared. Then the lame will leap like the deer and the tongue of the speechless will sing. Waters will spring up in the desert and streams in the wilderness. The burning sand will become a pool and the thirsty ground, fountains of water. The jackal's habitat, a pasture, grass will become reeds and rushes. A highway will be there. It will be called the holy way. The unclean won't travel on it, but it will be, those, it will be for those walking on the way. Even fools won't get lost on it. No lion will be there and no predator will go upon it. None of these will be on it. Only the redeemed will walk upon it. The Lord's ransom ones will return to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy upon their heads. <laughs> Happiness and joy will overwhelm them. Grief and groaning will flee away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I've had the pleasure of the opportunity of traveling to Israel in my lifetime. It it was wonderful and a a once-in-a-lifetime thing. I got to spend some time on that trip um, in the Judean desert. And if you've ever seen pictures or, or, or been there, you know that it's not a very hospitable place. Right, you know that the the wilderness just kind of to the east of where Jerusalem lies and and really just kind of east and south of the Jordan River Valley, it is just, the best I can describe it is desolate. One of the things that strikes me about that particular place and about looking out kind of on the Judean wilderness is just sort of the monochromatic nature of it. Right? You think about desert, you think, generally speaking, deserts are sort of devoid of, of anything but one or two colors. It, it, in some places it's red, some places it's, it's a, a brownish, a sandy color. The, the Judean desert is just sort of monochrome. You look out and, and there's a desolate beauty to it, but it's just kind of one color all the way out there. It, just, just one color. And, and, and so if, if you're somebody living in, in Judea, even now, but back in, in the time where Isaiah talks about this, you're familiar with this kind of idea that, that the wilderness surrounding uh, Judea and the promised land is just sort of this dry, desolate, um, not much growing, not much living, single colored sort of expanse of wilderness. And we know that, that in the scriptures, the wilderness is, is an interesting place. It, it serves an interesting sort of... Uh, metaphorical sense for the people of Israel. For, for some of us, we go to the wilderness to recharge, right? We go to the wilderness because of beauty. We go on road trips because it's wonderful. But, but in the ancient world, the wilderness was kind of a place of, of testing, a place of trying, a place that you, you didn't necessarily want to spend a whole lot of time in, right? So when we hear that Israel wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, we're not like lucky them, they got to go on a trek for 40 years, right? 
We think they were in the wilderness. They were, they were nomadic. They were out in this land that is, that is not really forgiving in this place that, that, that while you can live there, it is hard and it is difficult. Water is scarce. Food is scarce. The wilderness is, is just a difficult place to be in and a difficult idea. It's a difficult place to navigate. If you look at that, there's not many places for straight paths in the wilderness of Judea. This is fairly typical of what an expanse in the wilderness of Judea would look like. It's hilly, it's barren, it's dry. It's these deep washes where, where, where water has, has at one point flowed, but, but there's not a real good straight way to get anywhere, especially if you think about the ancient world where they didn't have bulldozers, right? You took the path of least resistance, winding. It was a dangerous place. It was an unforgiving place. So, so given that description and given that understanding of the wilderness of Judea and the dry places surrounding the people of Israel, which they would have been very closely acquainted with, it's interesting to hear Isaiah talk in the way he does. Now, as we get going today, I just want to warn you about something. What we're reading is poetry. Right? Isaiah is, is, is giving this word of the Lord, but, but it's poetry. It's meant to be metaphorical. So, so, so as we hear this and as we read this, just, just remind it, there are things that point to other things, but there's not generally one-to-one relationships that are going on here. It's poetry. It's meant to evoke images and ideas and feelings in us about what God is doing. Okay, that being said, given how things are in the wilderness around Israel... And given how, how the people would be familiar with this idea, it's interesting that, that Isaiah begins this particular text by, by talking about dry places becoming places of abundance. Places of scarcity becoming places of growth and wonder and life. He even talks about places that are dry, that are barren, that are monochrome, that are they're just sort of one color. He talks about these places bursting into color. Now, now imagine, if you will, this scene. And Isaiah is saying, you will see this scene, but instead of this, this sandy color, this dun color, you will see color bursting forth from the ground in the wilderness. It'll go from this to this. It'll go from barren and dry and, and yucky looking to beautiful and growing and abundant. He says the, the crocus shall, shall bloom in the desert. Now, I don't know if some of you may be familiar, this has kind of come into term in the last few years, the idea of a super bloom. Anybody heard about super blooms in the desert? I'm really the only one. Okay. Got to make sure to just note that. Okay, Greg. Okay, I've got one. I'm happy. Super blooms are what happens in, in Southern California for us. But when in the desert, a certain amount of rain falls at a certain amount of time of the year. And so all of these flowers whose, whose seeds lie dormant, all of a sudden just burst into bloom. And so this is actually a picture of a super bloom. I think this is 2019 in Southern California. The desert going from dry and barren, for those of you who have been to Southern California, it's dry and it's not barren, but it's not a great place to live if you don't divert the Colorado River, okay? So it's, it's, a, it's a rough place to live. But every now and again, the rains fall at the right time in the spring, and the, the desert literally bursts into bloom. In, in fact, the, the blooms are so spectacular and amazing, you can see them from space. 
I, I guarantee, go and look up Superbloom in California, and you can see Google Earth images of, of just the difference that it is. It's literally the desert bursting into bloom. It's something that people flock from around the world to see. And this is the idea, the image that Isaiah is working with in our text today. Right? The desert, this dry, this dun-colored thing, right? This turning into this. But Isaiah is not simply talking about something that happens every few years, right? He's not saying, well, sometime rain will come and it'll make everything beautiful. But what Isaiah is talking about is sort of a reorientation, a refiguring, a remaking of the earth. So that the dry places, the places of scarcity become places of abundance. The places we associate with yuckiness become places that bloom, that grow. Isaiah is presenting a picture of a world transformed and renewed. A place where where the dry places, the dry washes that occasionally fill up in Israel with water when it rains in the mountains. But all of a sudden these dry places become oases in the wilderness. The the images that that Isaiah is working with are, are this wonderful transformed and renewed future. The people knew what it was like to be in the wilderness. They had heard stories and they lived right on the edge. They knew how hard it was to make make anything grow in the wilderness. And so Isaiah is saying, in this wilderness, in these dry and parched places, water will spring forth and there will be abundance and there will be growth and there will be life. He talks about roads in the wilderness. Again, roads in the wilderness were difficult, were hard. They were dangerous places to be. Right? You've heard the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's fairly typical of roads in the ancient world. And that was in Roman times. And before that, in this time in Israel, it was a dangerous place to be. It was hot. It was dusty. There were animals. There were, you heard about, Isaiah mentioned some of them, like lions and jackals, things like that. It was dangerous to be there. You never knew what was around the next bend. But Isaiah speaks of a future when there is a road through the wilderness that's straight and wide and well-marked. For those of us who like to take the scenic route, this is hard to like conceptualize. But people in the ancient world didn't want to take the scenic route, right? If you're going through the desert, you don't have AC. You don't have gas, internal combustion. You're walking. You're exposed. You want to get there as quickly as possible and as easily as possible. And so Isaiah describes this this road in the wilderness where not even, this is the language he used, not even an idiot can get lost. Right? That's, That's what he says. Not even a fool will get lost on this particular road because it's so well marked. It's so easy to follow. There is a road to the wilderness, through the wilderness, back to inhabited places. Isaiah presents this picture of of a world made new, right? This isn't simply a return from exile language, although that is in there. But what we're seeing here is, is renewed world, shalom, new creation kind of language that Isaiah is using. And this is all the more stark and all the more amazing when you consider the conditions in Israel at this particular time. I've talked about it a couple times over the last two or three weeks. That the thing, that the conditions in Israel weren't good. 
So if, if we read Isaiah 35, we read this and go, man, God's got some amazing stuff in store for the people of Israel. It's wonderful. It's a great vision. It's awesome to hear about. Hallelujah. Thanks be to God. The people of Israel must be doing something right. If you were to flip back one page in your Bibles or on your screen, however it works in your particular device, you might read that things were not great in Israel. In in fact, at this particular time in their history, things were horrible. God had just gotten through telling the people of Israel how corrupt and bad they were just one chapter before. Isaiah 34 is full of God's condemnation of the wickedness and evil that is going on in Israel. And even if that wasn't the case, the people of Israel were often, and even in this time, at the threat of war. Right? This is the time when, when Assyria is on the, on the march, when, when Babylon, they're coming, coming in ascendancy. And, and even before this, the people of Israel are dealing with, with their neighbors to the north, with Israel to the north, and Syria to the northeast. In this time in their history, things were not good for them, and they were not necessarily wonderful and great people. They were not a people, let's say, who were following after the covenants that they had made with God. And so it's all the more amazing to see Isaiah bring this particular scripture, a desert blooming, Water in the wilderness. The people of God redeemed and restored. We read about that and go, wow. But we must read about it and hear this is not something that the people of Israel have earned. This is not something that they have any reason to expect. Based on their covenant relationship with God based on their current conditions and based on, at least from what we can tell in the scriptures, the current conditions of their hearts. They would have no reason to expect this. And all the more they knew Assyria was on the move. They were in danger. We don't know exactly where this is in the time frame of Isaiah, but there was very little time during Isaiah's ministry and career that the people of Israel were not under siege or about to be under siege or in danger of being under siege by a foreign power. Isaiah speaks these words to a people who have no reason nor right to expect that God would do this. And yet into the trouble and even to a perhaps a people who would not be able to hear, Isaiah speaks these words And he talks about even more amazing things, right? Not simply that the world will be transformed, that that creation itself will shout for joy at what God is doing, but how God will not only strengthen and give courage to God's own people, but that God will begin to do things in people. He, He says that the lame will leap like gazelles. Those who cannot walk will be running marathons. Those who cannot see will will have vision restored. Those who cannot hear will be able to hear. Those who cannot speak will be able to sing the praises of God. 
all of these things are signs and symbols and promises of God's mighty restoring and recreating acts, not just in a people, but in all of creation. We are creation itself. Creation itself gives praise and thanks to God for what God is doing in the world. It's a wonderful vision, is it not? It's a fantastic thing to read about. It is wonderful and good and holy. And we see some fulfillment of this in, in Israel and in the history of Israel, right? So, so let's, let's brief history of Israel at this particular point. Isaiah is prophesying to the people saying things are going to get real bad. And we'll, we'll hear more about this next week, right? Isaiah will prophesy and say, guess what? Things are really bad. You're going to go into exile. You're going to be taken away. You're going to go to Babylon. This place will be ruined. In fact, in Isaiah 6, the, the first kind of vision we have recorded of Isaiah having, what does God say to him is his job. He says, go and tell this people. See, but do not see. Hear, but do not hear. Stop ears so that the people won't turn, so that they won't be healed. Isaiah is devastated by the news that God gives him, right? He's volunteered to be God's prophet. He's excited about it. And God says, things are going to be bad. In fact, what God says is, it's all going to be burned. It'll all be burned. Isaiah says, how long? How long do I have to preach? How long is this going to last? God says, until cities lie waste without inhabitants. He says, if even a tenth part remains, if even a tithe remains, it's going to be burned again. He says, like, like a mighty tree that's been fallen in the forest, that's how it's going to be. God's message to Isaiah is, un- stop the ears, blind the eyes. Does this sound familiar? But God says, a time is coming when eyes will be opened when ears will be unstopped, when tongues will be unloosed, where the people will return to Zion with joy. And, and really that's what happens. The people go into exile and, and after 70 years, they're, they're brought back into the promised land. They're done. What happens among them has never happened before. A people who are taken into exile are sent back home and God reestablishes Israel, reestablishes worship in Jerusalem and it's wonderful and it's good. Another interesting note. When Jesus comes on the scene, it's no wonder that the New Testament writers quote Isaiah often when talking about Jesus because the, Isaiah, the, the writers of the New Testament, those who are recording this, are, are looking at what's happening in Jesus, looking at what happened through this person and going, this is some of this kind of stuff that Isaiah talked about. In fact, when John's disciples came to Jesus and said, our master wants to know, are you the one who is to come? Are you the promised one? Should we expect that you are the one or should we look for someone else? Do you remember what Jesus said? Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind see. The deaf hear. The lame are made well. The oppressed are going free. We see in Jesus 
The very action and activity and promises of God being fulfilled in these same sort of ways. Where God's promised redemption is coming. And in fact, when Jesus says that, we are to hear that it is here, it is happening in Jesus. Jesus is the promised redemption. What God did with Israel, God is doing over and over and over again through God's people. And God says, but in Christ, it is not just for a people, it is for all people. But we have another problem. Jesus came, and we are happy about that. Jesus was born. We'll celebrate it. We've been celebrating it for a couple thousand years now. So we're going to celebrate two weeks from the day. We're going to gather here, and we are going to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Jesus came, and Jesus had a ministry where he preached good news to to people like us who, who didn't deserve it and who may not have been the important people in the world. He spent time with us. And he had a ministry among the people, and he was ultimately put to death, convicted as a sinner, though he had done nothing wrong. He was crucified. Everything humanity could throw at him, we did. The innocent one suffered and died, not because he deserved it, because he was willing to take what we had to give so that we might have life. In his name, he was crucified, dead, buried, and rose again. And that's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news that that the world is different now. Now that Christ has come, now that Christ was born, Christ died and rose again, things are different, right? If death is no longer the biggest problem we face, all bets are off the table. Everything's made new. Everything is different. For in Christ's name, we have life. And yet we live in this weird time where we celebrate Christ's victory over death. That's what we sang about. We sang a hymn that we normally sing on Easter. Rejoice, the Lord is king. We sing about his triumph over all things, over death, that he is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And it is wonderful and good news. And yet sometimes we sing that song and go, wait a minute. The observable reality around me doesn't always reflect that song that we sang this morning. I've been reminded of that the last couple weeks. As we sat and we celebrated and we remembered Janet Walker, I couldn't help but think things are not as they should be. Not yet. for all the wonder and joy of this season, for all that we celebrate and rightly should, sometimes it is difficult because though we recognize what God has done, we find it difficult to rejoice amidst the brokenness of our present circumstances. Sometimes the observable reality does not match the promise that we have been given. That was true for the people in Isaiah's day, even here. The promise of Isaiah, paths in the wilderness, a blooming desert, didn't match the observable reality. Freedom didn't match the observable reality. But Isaiah didn't preach this merely to say, this is the observable fact and you got to get on that train. 
Isaiah says, this is what God is doing. This is what God is doing. And because this is what God is doing, we can have hope, we can have courage, we can have faith and know that God will accomplish all the things that God has promised. Our hope is based not not in some Pollyanna hope that things turn out. Our hope is based in and rooted in and grounded in the character of God and what God has done in the past. We see what God has done in the past and know that God can be trusted to do what God has said in the future. And so even in the midst of darkness, we can have hope. Even when things feel very desert-like in our world, we can have hope. But notice that Isaiah takes it a bit further. And the scriptures take it a bit further. It is one thing to have hope. It is another thing to be able to rejoice in that hope when things are bad. I can have hope that things will get better. But it's much harder for me to sing wonderful songs when I am feeling down. When I am feeling broken and bruised and battered. When I'm dealing with grief and despair, it is hard for me to have joy. So, so what, what, is, what does Isaiah want us to do? What is Isaiah telling the people to do? Just ignore your circumstances and just sing songs as if nothing's going on around you. Just fiddle while Rome burns, right? Maybe that's what he's saying. Well, I don't think so. What he's saying is recognize, yes, the present circumstance. Rejoice in the future that God has set out for you. Rejoice perhaps in all of this to know that God has not ever left. That the God who did this in the past ensures that God will do the thing he promised in the future. That's why Isaiah says strengthen weak hands. Give strength to to feeble knees. Isaiah recognizes. He knows. He's not stupid. He observes. Things were bad for Israel. So he he doesn't say ignore what's going on, but, but rejoice in the futures that God has promised as an act of defiance of present circumstance. We don't rejoice because we're stupid or forgetful or just Pollyanna. We rejoice because our hope is grounded in the character and nature of a God who calls, who redeems, and who does what God has said. Our hope and our joy is grounded in the faithfulness of the God who calls us. That where we see desert all around us, one day we might see growing things again. Not because that's just our preferred future, but because we have hope that is grounded in the character and nature of God, who does what God has said. And so we can have hope and even, yes, rejoice in the midst of circumstances that don't feel very joyful. To rejoice in the Lord is not to say it doesn't matter, the suffering we see or the suffering we're going through. 
to rejoice in the Lord is to say, God is with me even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We rejoice because God is faithful. As I was preparing the sermon, I I don't know how I got off on this, but um, I think I was just thinking about Christmas carols and, and I started looking into a particular Christmas carol that I haven't sung very much, but I know fairly well. You may be familiar with the the Christmas carol, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Uh, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day is not an altogether joyful hymn. Uh, And for those of you who may not know the origin of that particular hymn, uh, that particular hymn was started off its life as a poem written by the poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. A wonderful, wonderful poet. um, First poet in America to make his living from poetry. But he wrote this poem. And so as I was kind of looking into all of that, I I began to research the circumstances in which he wrote this poem. So so this this hymn we sing sometimes at Christmas time came out of a man who was writing in the midst of deep, deep, deep darkness in his life. It was, I believe, late 1863, maybe 64. I might have the dates wrong, so don't quote me on that. Fortunately, it's not a history test. But this is what had happened to him in the previous year. So just context, this is during the Civil War, right? Which is not a great time in American history, right? Things are bad. There is suffering. There is death. There is division. And he had just lost his second wife. His second wife, a horrible story. She was writing letters by a fire, or no, by writing letters, sealing them with candle wax, her dress caught on fire. And ultimately, she suffered burns and died from them, from her dress catching on fire. Dangerous place to be, um, 1864 America. Wadsworth himself was actually severely burned. And it's some say that that's why he grew a beard, because his face was disfigured from the burns that he received attending to his wife, who burned to death. It's the midst of the Civil War. His son, his eldest son, who wasn't old enough yet to join the army um, without his father's consent, at least tacitly so, um, had just off one day because Longfellow didn't want his son to go join the Civil War. His son basically left one day, wrote him a note, and said, I have to do what I have to do, and went to serve in the Civil War. Ultimately was wounded in November of 63, I believe. Shot in the back. And so Wordsworth had to go and, and take him home, and it was touch and go. Fortunately, he lived. It's a picture of his son. And, and so on Christmas Day, 1863, uh, Wordsworth Longfellow sits down and begins to write a poem. He hears these bells coming from the church down the street. And he writes this poem, which I'd like to read, because what we sing isn't generally the whole poem. Uh, what we sing is just uh, three stanzas, I believe, of, of what is much, a much longer work. And I, I, I want to read this to you just to give context of what he was going through. It says, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar's carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought I how as the day had come, The belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth and goodwill to men. 
till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day. A voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth and goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the heart stones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. For there is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. We see a poet who is acutely aware, acutely aware of this fact that, that, that for 2,000 years, the people had been singing peace on earth, goodwill to men. That's what the angels said to the shepherds, peace on earth, goodwill to men. And Wadsworth looks around and he goes, where is it? Where is it? Just read that again. And in despair, I bowed my head, for there is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. That may be where Israel was at this particular time when Isaiah speaks these things. Looking around going, sure, whatever. I'm not seeing it. It's easy to read the newspaper and go, there is no peace on earth. pretty easy, right? The headlines, war in Ukraine, war in Africa, division in the United States, countries deposing their leaders. I mean, it, it, it doesn't feel like there's peace on earth. Loved ones dying, suffering, pain, heartache. It seems sometimes that these things mock that song. Of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Fortunately, Wadsworth didn't end with that particular stanza. For me, this is where the remembrance of the character and nature of God kicks in. I may be ascribing things to this poet, but I'm going to read it that way. For, for, for the, the poem takes a turn from very, very dark. There is no peace on earth, I said, for... For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But then he says this, then peals the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, and the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. Amidst the darkness of where he was, amidst the darkness of where Israel was, Amidst the darkness of where people in the first century AD, those shepherds in the field were, and amidst the darkness where we might find ourselves, where we might be cynical and say, there is no peace on earth. God's dead. God's abandoned us. The words of the prophets, of Isaiah, of Ezekiel, of John the Baptist, cry out among all the other voices and say, God is not dead. God does not sleep. The wrong will fail. The right will prevail with peace on earth and goodwill to men. 
God has not abandoned God's creation. As Isaiah said in in chapter 35, God has not abandoned God's people. The desert will bloom. Where we see only death, life will come forth. And we have this hope and we can sing with joy for it is grounded in the faithfulness of the God who has worked and will work again and continues to work in and among us. The wrong will fail for God has already won. The right will prevail for God has promised shalom. God has put God's spirit in us that we might not only wait for the promised future, but live the promised future here and now that we might raise songs of joy in defiance of perhaps even the observable reality around us. We defy the sources and forces of evil and darkness by crying, God is not dead, nor does he sleep. As we celebrate Christmas in a couple weeks, we sing peace on earth, goodwill to men as an act of defiance of a world that sometimes tells us exactly the opposite. It says might is right. Violence wins. We sing our song, Defiance of Joy. For we have a hope and a faith grounded in a God who is faithful. And God will accomplish that which God has promised. The desert will bloom. The dry places will overflow with water. The places that are only the haunt of danger and evil will become growing places where the people of God dwell. And God will lead God's people home on a wide path, on a straight path through the wilderness. This morning, I'd I'd like to close with a song of defiance. It is this particular song, perhaps in a different form than you're used to, but this song that I want to sing as an act of defiant faith. A faith that says our observable reality may say one thing, but our hope is grounded in something else, something deeper, something more profound, that even amidst tears and darkness and pain, we might rejoice at what God has done and rejoice what God will do. Would you please stand and sing?